If you would, please take your Bibles out and open them to the book of Zephaniah. And if you're wondering where that is, it's between Habakkuk and Haggai. And if that still doesn't help you, you can look it up in the front of your Bible. Um, Zephaniah is where we will be this morning and probably next week, not particularly Zephaniah, but looking at some of the prophetic literature of the Old Testament. When it, become, when it comes to the incarnation, it is not merely a New Testament idea. Of course, we see it, I was about to say, fleshed out in the New Testament. Um, well, I can go ahead and say that. We see the incarnation fleshed out in the New Testament, um, and no pun intended on that. Okay, it's just not a funny joke, okay? <laughs> yeah. I was waiting for the, the, the anyway, moving on. Uh, Zephaniah, uh, we see the incarnation fleshed out in the New Testament, but we need to understand it's all rooted in the Old Testament. So when the New Testament writers want to tell us about the coming of Christ, what do they do? They tell us by quoting the Old Testament. They tell us by going back to Moses, by the law, the prophets, and the writings, the wisdom literature. So the reason that the Hebrews organized their Bible as a Tanakh. If you've ever seen it on the shelf, you've seen the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nethuvim, and the Kethuvim, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And so what we have in the Old Testament is so many paragraphs, so many instances where it is telling us that Christ is coming. It's telling us why Christ is coming, and it's telling us the result of what will be when Christ comes. And so when we think about how vital the Old Testament is, of course, it makes up most of our Bible, but it's vital because it tells us exactly what God is going to do and how He will do it. That is exactly why Jesus, in Luke's gospel, on the road to Emmaus, the last chapter, verse 27, He began to explain to the disciples from Moses and the writings, or Moses and the prophets, rather, all about Himself and how all those Scriptures pointed to Him. And so when we come back round to what is important for us to remember at Advent, I think one of the things that's seriously important for us to remember is it's not just confined to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It is so much more expansive than that. That in the midst of so many prophets, if you read Amos, Amos spends a lot of time talking about justice. Or you read Habakkuk talking about faithfulness. Or you read Joel talking about the day of the Lord. All these prophets come back around in some way to looking forward to Jesus. To looking forward to the coming of Christ. And so this morning, that's where we are. We're going to look at this last paragraph in the book of Zephaniah, perhaps a prophet you've never really studied before. Zephaniah is unique in the sense that he incorporates a little bit of psalmody in his prophecy, similar to Habakkuk in that way. That, so when you read his prophecy, you're not reading just straight up prose prophecy. It's prophetic, but it's poetical. It's a bit of poetry to it. And that's kind of where we are. In fact, if we were to read a whole corpus, uh, starting in verse 9, we could read something that's more like psalm. But these last seven verses, verses 14 to 20, really are psalm-like. As it tells us about God, it tells us what God will do for His people. And so what do we extrapolate from that is how does that happen? It happens in Christ. 
So we got a, a beautiful gospel presentation right here in Zephaniah this morning. And so without further delay, let's turn our attention there now. Zephaniah chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant word. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord." May God add his blessing to the reading of Scripture. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this gospel truth by the hand of Zephaniah under the influence of your Spirit. Use it this morning to encourage us and to remind us of the rich beauty of the incarnation, of the rich beauty of what you've done as our Emmanuel. Thank you for your mercies and for this text. Deepen our roots, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I have several things in Scripture that are just personal favorites of mine. I love the story of Joseph, partly because when I first became a Christian, it was the Joseph story that I read first, and it really ministered to me that some of the, 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 thing, the evil things that happened in my life, God could actually use for good. So I love Jonah because he's a rascal, and he's just kind of the worst, and you read Jonah, and you, you start out as a young Christian, you kind of wag your finger at him, and then as you grow and mature, you go, oh, right, I kind of am that guy. In the New Testament, there is, to me, it has been translated to the English language, there is nothing more beautiful than the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is one of the most beautiful things ever written, in my opinion. I love the whole Bible, but John's Gospel is, you, is just a unique love of mine. But also, in Luke's gospel, one of my seminary professors, I, I know that some of you are familiar with the name Richard Pratt, wrote a, wrote a book called He Gave Us Stories, talking about how God communicates Scripture to us. It's a great book. But Jesus did give us stories, and one of my favorite stories in the, in the New Testament is the prodigal son. We just went over this a few weeks ago, so it should not be lost on you that one of the reasons we did it, so I thought it would speak to us, but it's also just a personal favorite of mine. I love that story because what does it do? It captures the truth of human condition, doesn't it? You see the sons, and neither one of them are perfect. Both of them are needy. The Father has to go out to both of them. So what Jesus does is effectively talk to us about the human condition, the human condition that needs the Father, whether it's the legalist 
or the licentious. Both of them are needy, and both of them have the same need. They have a distorted view of the Father. Both of them need to see. The younger son in the parable sees. The older son were never really told. But we also see the notion of celebration in that parable. I love that. The son takes his inheritance, and he goes off, and he celebrates in a very debaucherous way, in a way that does not bring honor to his father, but would bring shame on the family. The father, undeterred by the son's shame, celebrates in quite another way. When this shameful, sin-bearing son of his returns home, he doesn't spend time wagging and shaming and wagging and shaming. He puts a robe on him, a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and he says, celebrate because this son of mine has returned. What the Father does is give us a beautiful, unique picture of what it means as Christians for us to be celebratory, to celebrate. What is the season that we're in? It's a season of celebration, and it should be. We're celebrating God come to the earth to bring hope, life, joy, restoration, and life. And so when we think about the celebration that we read in Luke 15 in the parable of the prodigal son, we could easily call it joy manifested, when joy becomes manifest in celebration. So that I'm not, I'm not waiting for that next big thing. It's not a what have you done for me lately. It's taking a step back. And by the way, I'm preaching to myself this morning, taking a step back and looking at the grand picture of the incarnation and say, despite everything going on in my life, there is something rich and beautiful at work. I'm glad to make a Lord of the Rings reference because it's perfect. It's just perfect. Sam and Frodo, lost in Mordor, they feel like their, their mission is death. They just feel like it's death. Frodo can barely walk. He can barely stand. He's weighted down by this evil. They're laying in the cool of the night one time, and Sam looks up into the skies. He's think, just utter despair. And beyond the mist of Mordor, he sees the stars, and, and he sees a clear space in the sky, and he's reminded there is something there are some things that evil just cannot touch. There is some goodness beyond the realm of evil that evil has no power over. And, of course, they go on to, well, I'll let you read it. Um, this, this is what stuff like Zephaniah has to do for us. It's what it's doing for me today. It's beyond the things that we see. There is something beyond that that gives us reason to celebrate and to have joy, even in our brokenness. God calls people to a life of celebration, and this, what, what that doesn't mean, so what, what Brad is not saying is a life of, of my happiness is primary, and life is good, and I can celebrate insofar as I'm happy, because if we're waiting to be happy to celebrate, we will rarely celebrate. I know that's true of me, and I'm relatively certain it's true of you. We're not saying that this is a life where, where pleasure is the goal, where my primary goal is pleasure. Is it fun to, to have pleasure? Yeah, I like pleasure. I like when things are pleasant. It's not the goal. It's great when it happens. It's not the goal. We're called to celebrate true life. We're called to celebrate a life that we've already sang about this morning that actually conquers death. That if you are sitting here this morning and you can hear me and you call Christ Lord, something beautiful has happened in you. 
Christ has brought his life to bear on the death that was present in you, and that death has now been nullified so that even when your physical body dies, you live with Christ. Beloved, that's the beauty of the gospel. It's something worth celebrating. We're called to celebrate that life. The father celebrated the son's return. And I want you to notice now, in the, in the prodigal son, something that could be easy to miss is the, you could easily say, well, the father's celebrating the circumstances. Son's circumstances are much better. It's not what he's doing. He's celebrating the changed heart in his son. Because remember how his son, I mean, you've got a, a beautiful picture of repentance. Father, what does he say? I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. What is that? That's called humility. And that's called turning away from a lifestyle of sin and walking in humility back to the Father. So, of course, we know the Father doesn't let him finish his speech, right? He interrupts him and says, bring the, bring the robe, bring the sandals, bring the ring, prepare the fatted calf. Why? Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. He's not talking about just lost from a distant country. This, this goes deeper than that. So, he's celebrating a changed life as much as he is the changed circumstances. When we look at Zephaniah, what Zephaniah is doing, he is a prophet. He is part of the book of the 12 in the Hebrew it's called, or as we might know them as the minor prophets. We call them minor not because they're of less value, but because they generally wrote shorter epistles. When you look at some of the minor prophets, some of them are longer than others, but as a general rule, these prophets are called minor because of the length of their letters. Zephaniah is looking forward to a great salvation, one that has come in the incarnation. So what he looks forward to, we look back to. And so we meet in the middle at the cross, Zephaniah looking to the cross, we look back to the cross, and we come together to celebrate the incarnation and actually what it's done for us. Yes, yeah, suffering exists. It does, and it will it will continue. And suffering is hard. But we have to walk in the joy of our Father even in the midst of hard circumstances. That is not easy. It's really not. Sometimes we may be persecuted for our faith. Sometimes we may have physical ailments that hinder us. Sometimes we have psychological or mental ailments that hinder us. Sometimes we go through particular seasons where there's a combination of spiritual, psychological, physical are coming together, and they're attacking us. I'm telling you, find somebody who's lived in chronic pain and ask them if they have dark nights of the soul, not just because they're hurting, but because you know what chronic pain does? It starts to eat away at the psyche. It starts to send despair. Am I never going to be healed? And then what does that give way to? It gives, ways to, it gives way to spiritual. Why won't God heal me? God, will you, are, are you far from me? So when we start thinking about ailments, it's no light matter to deal with somebody who's walking in chronic pain. And yet, and yet, even in those places of chronic pain, the dark nights of the soul, the mental anguish, there's joy. Joy is there. We can tap into it because of Christ. So this morning, the idea that, we've, that we get from Zephaniah is simple. Joyfulness and fearfulness are the fruit of God's restoration. Um, joyfulness and fearlessness, not fearfulness. God is not compelling you to be afraid. 
even though we, there are moments to be afraid in his presence. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning, and we can see that at Mount Sinai. But joylessness and fearlessness are the fruit of God's restoration. So when we're looking at, at Zephaniah, we really can break this, this down into two segments, really. And first is a song of love. So even in the face of suffering, we can offer joy-filled praise to God. And if you think that you question that, again, as I often do, point you back to martyr stories and see how many times hymns of praise were sung in the face of certain death. Oftentimes, while they were being uh, ignited on fire or tortured, that prayers and Scripture quotation and hymns were sung because despite their moment of pain, there was a larger joy at work, something far off that the evil couldn't touch. So when we look at Zephaniah, he starts out with this, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Boom, four imperative verbs. Brad, what's an imperative verb? It is an express command. This is urgency, there's passion, but it's a command. Shout, shout, rejoice, exult. Sing, shout, rejoice, exult. So, yes, sing. Uh, the, the verb there in, in the first part of verse 14, the first verb, it could technically be sing or shout. Um, ESV says sing, that's fine. So, so sing, shout, exult, and shout. No, 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 rejoice, sorry. I, I got it, I promise. Um, these are imperative verbs, and what we're looking at here is a song of sincerity and passion, and not just feeling, but a deep sense of passion over what God is doing. Sing, daughter of Zion, shout, Israel, rejoice and exult, daughter of Jerusalem. These terms of affection, daughter, daughter, Israel, Israel, the name that God had given His people, the special name that He had given, and then daughter, daughter, these terms of affection, what is the prophet doing? He's singing a song of command saying, hey, we need to be a rejoicing people. Whatever comes our way, we should be a rejoicing people. Why? Why should Israel, the daughter of Jerusalem, the daughters of Zion, shout and sing? Because, beloved, we enjoy a status of being right with God. It's not because our circumstances are easy. This is not trying to get us to, to have this pie-in-the-sky view of life and to act as if life is not hard or doesn't have obstacles. That's not the point. The point is to say that we are God's people, and because of that, we can sing and shout and exult and rejoice. That joy is not contingent on a pay raise or, or a new house or a new car or a, a new this or new that or more clothes or more, uh, you know, more in the pantry. Those things are great, and if God gives those things, God be praised. Joy is centered in the fact that we are God's. He is our God. We are His people, and He is with us. That's the beauty of what Zephaniah is painting, and the very thing that Jesus Christ would embody. And so when we think about life, uh, Zephaniah sets the tone here, right at the beginning of this paragraph. What is the defining quality in our lives? What is the defining quality in our lives? What should it be? It should be worship. It should be worship. That we are worshipers first. That we are people who worship God. That we are people who pause to give thanks. We've talked about this before. It bears repeating, pause and give thanks to God. Why? 
because of paragraphs like this that remind us of who God is and what God does, has done, and will do, so that we are a worshiping people. And so we celebrate, we celebrate in the face of suffering. Why? Well, I'm about to read it here in just a moment, but because God intervenes, because God breaks into where we are, has broken in to where we are. What does Zephaniah say? The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Now, let that wash over you. I want you to think about the person that you see in the mirror every day, however many times you look there, and think about the things in which you've done, the things that you've said, the way that you might have treated people, the way that you might have felt towards others, the way that you might have handled mistreatment, all those things, and remember something about that. Those things don't define you. Why? Because in Scripture, we're told the Lord has taken away the judgments against you, i.e., against His people. God intervenes. He declares us right. He's offered atonement for our sins. Now, Zephaniah had a ritualistic temple mentality of thinking about how atonement works. When we think about the judgments being taken away against you, what the first thing that should come to our minds is praise God for the cross. Because at the cross, God laid our unrighteousness on Christ. Christ became a curse for us at the cross. And through that identification, his righteousness became laid or was laid upon us, making us righteous in him. And so what that means is the judgment we deserved was laid on him. So Zephaniah is talking about something that would totally come as a fruit of the incarnation, that judgment would be removed, that we would be declared right, that sins would be atoned for. And then he builds on that. The Lord has taken away judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. What did Jesus do? What is the primary thing Jesus did? When he died on the cross, he defeated sin. He defeated Satan, and he defeated the world in our flesh. Now, did that mean that categorically we never struggle with those things again? No, it doesn't mean that. Here's what it does mean, that if we're in Christ, though we may struggle, we are victorious. So he's cleared away by the incarnation through the coming of Christ. When we, when we sing and we, and we, we kind of we groan, O come, O come, Emmanuel, we're praying, we're singing a celebration. It's kind of a melancholic celebration, but it's a celebration nonetheless of Jesus coming, Emmanuel, God with us for the express purpose of taking away the judgments against you, for clearing away the enemies. Who has done this, Zephaniah? Where has this happened? The King of Israel, the Lord. Where is the King of Israel, Zephaniah? Where is the Lord? He is in your midst and you shall never again fear evil. That is a powerful statement. And to think this came from an Old Testament prophet who had not yet seen the incarnation. How rich and beautiful is the Holy Spirit and His inspiration. Because we look at this and say, oh, that one has come. His name is Jesus. Zephaniah said, oh, there's not, there's not going to be an exile that heals the deep wounds in us. We need something bigger. We need something richer. We need the Lord himself. And so this king is in our midst. What does he do? He empowers us to stand against evil. That's no light thing that you have been gifted with. 
the power to stand against evil, the right, the ability, the strength to say no to fleshly things and yes to righteousness. So He's given us His power. He's turned away our enemies. He's delivered us. One of the things in covenant language that God tells Abraham that Christ did embody for us, that He has become a shield for us. He says that He will be a shield to His people. When He turns away our enemies, very much think of shield mentality. Who is the shield of the people of God? Jesus is. (laughs) Who took the blows that we deserved? Jesus did. Who dealt with Satan in a way that, only, that could only lead to victory on our behalf? Jesus did. He, he, he became the shield of the covenant for God's people. And so he's turned away those enemies. He's moved them out. He is the king in our midst. He does empower us. And when we think about joy, where, how do joy and fear work in tandem? Well, usually when I'm most afraid, I have the least amount of joy. Usually when I'm walking in fear, I'm not walking in joy because I'm too focused on what's in front of me or what's plaguing me. Joy is our best weapon against fear. In fact, it's one of, it's one of, the, one of the, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. It should not be lost on us that of the nine things Paul could have said, joy was one of them. That when we're walking in joy, it doesn't mean that we're skipping along. It doesn't mean that there are no tears when I have joy. It just means that I have a fundamental understanding of who God is and that there is something beyond the evil that I can cling to. That is righteous. That is good. That is true. That gives hope. Why are we joyful, beloved? Can I just give you a simple solution as to why? Not because you get everything you want, but because the King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. And we can have faith and walk in confidence and be filled with joy. He moves on. On that day, I love on that day. Of course, the day of the Lord is such a rich theme in the Old Testament. We don't have time to get into it. If you want to read one of the richest things in the Old Testament about the day of the Lord, read Joel's prophecy. It is fantastic in that way. On that day, on that day, the the Old Testament prophets love to use this language. On that day, the day of the Lord, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. And so when we think about this the larger context, the Lord your God is in your midst. Again, he says it, so this is twice. Now, when you see that type of repetition, it should catch your eye. The Lord is in your midst, a mighty one who, who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I want to stop because this paints one of the most unique pictures in the Old Testament about God's person, about his identity, about what he does. So what we have here, just kind of backing up from this for a second, the Lord Himself sings songs of victory over and for His people. (laughs) So what does that kind of look like? In that day, well, the day of the Lord, the day of vindication, the day of judgment, the day in which the Lord uh, makes things right or brings things to, to bear on the wicked, one of the things that we are told is on that day will be said to Jerusalem, fear not. So don't, don't be afraid. Why? 
Don't be afraid in the public square. Don't be afraid in contemporary society. Don't be afraid spiritually. Why? Why? Because we are governed by truth of His reign, that His, His presence is with us. And so when we are struggling with trust, we're going to be afraid. When we are growing in our trust and trusting in the Lord, fear is not going to be the biggest enemy that we face. It will still be there because we're human beings, but it will not be oppressive. I love how he, he builds on this. Fear not. Let not your hands grow weak. You know what he's saying there? When we have this command to let not your hands grow weak, don't become wearied. Don't let your hands grow weak. Don't, don't, don't fight and come to a space where you're just like, I'm tired of fighting. Satan loves that phrase. As a pastor, I'll tell you two things about that phrase. The phrase, I'm tired of fighting. I can't tell you how many times I've said it myself. I'm tired of fighting. That's a dangerous place to be. I can't tell you how many times I've heard it in my study when I've met, met with young men or, or with couples. I'm tired of fighting. I've said it myself, and I've heard it a lot. What Zephaniah is saying here is, let not your hands grow weak. Don't get tired of fighting. Keep fighting. Because when we get tired of fighting, we quit. And when we quit, we open the door for all manner of things to come in and snatch away God's truth, if it can be snatched. And when we allow this snatching of truth, we begin to believe lies. And when we begin to believe lies, we begin to make decisions based on false premises, and when we make decisions based on false premises, we get sidetracked in the wilderness. Let not your hands grow weak. Continue to draw strength from the Lord who is in your midst and keep fighting. I've already said this. The Lord is in your midst. Isaiah, Emmanuel, God with us. That's the principle that Zephaniah is building on. What is the hope of God's people? The Lord in our midst. What, why is the reason we celebrate this season? The Lord is in our midst. When we're saying Merry Christmas, you know, we're really saying, hey, have joy because the Lord is in our midst. He has come. He reigns. He lives with us. The Lord is in our midst. But I love how Zephaniah describes him here. The Lord your God is in your midst how, what, what, what kind of Lord is he? So the Lord, covenant name Yahweh, your God. So covenant ruler, covenant, the lover of our souls, God, the one who rules and reigns. The Lord your God is in your midst. And now he further describes a mighty one. Gabor, that's the Hebrew word, describes God. Gabor, he is mighty. He's not weak. Why? Your hands don't have to grow weak because he's not weak. So he's a mighty one. He's a warrior. And what does he do as a warrior? He will save saves his people from death and destruction. He delivers. So you're getting this warrior who saves and delivers, who fights. He's a fighter. Right? He fights for his people. That's one. But he's also not just a fighter. He's a singer. He fights for you, but he, quiet, he will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. He will quiet you by his love. He exults over you with loud singing. When we sing to God, we are reflecting a God who sings over us, songs of delight, songs of love, songs of joy, songs of power, songs of restoration, songs of redemption. We have a God who fights and a God who sings. 
He delights in his people to the point that he sings over his people with songs of love. He declares his love for his people with loud singing, more or less is what Zephaniah is saying. How often do you hear that picture of Yahweh preached? Probably very rarely. It's different. And yet the text tells us this very thing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Who is God? He's the fighter. He's the singer. To borrow a phrase from contemporary culture, he's a warrior poet, just like David, or David is just like him. When we see a warrior poet like David, who is he emulating? Yahweh, the God who sings, the God who saves, the God who, well, that's good enough. I have to embellish it. So he declares his love for his people with loud singing. And what does it say? That the love of God, it quiets. That he will quiet you by his love. It quiets our sighs. It quiets our groans. It gives us real rest. How many times in your life have you been in a situation where you're groaning and God meets you in your groaning, maybe through the faithfulness of a friend, maybe through something completely unexpected, and your first reaction is just because you're speechless, because God and His mercy has brought quiet to your mind and soul because whatever need was pressing has now been met. Those happen to me. I'm sure they happen to you. And yet there may be times where you're like, man, I'm asking and keep asking and keep asking and keep asking. And you know what I'll say? Keep asking. That's what Scripture says. I don't sometimes like that answer either, but that's what Scripture gives us. When we think about who Jesus is, Jesus is the song of God to his people. Jesus is the song of God to his people. So let this be a description of Jesus. The Lord your God is in your midst. He's a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I want you to think about this just for a second with me. When Jesus walked the earth, you remember his lament in Jerusalem? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. Think of that. You aren't willing. Jesus brings this godly, this verse to life. The Lord's your God. There is the Lord their God in their midst. He's a mighty one who will save on the cross. He will rejoice with you in gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt, he will exalt over you with loud singing. There is no clearer description of Jesus in the Old Testament than that right there in terms of who Jesus is, what he has accomplished, and what he does for his people. We, we, we come to the reality that life isn't painless, and that's not our hope. It would be good if it was, but then there's so much that we wouldn't learn if it were. I mean, as, as, as parents or as people who work with younger people, I think that we often have this idea, I'd love to save them from some of the pain that I had to go through, and I would, and sometimes it's good, and yet some of the pain that you and I went through were the very things that shaped us to be who we are, and it stinks to have to walk through it. The, the rich beauty of it is, is something beautiful comes of it because we're reminded that God makes everything beautiful in its time, even pain. Zephaniah brings this background, 18, 19, and 20. He's talking about the love of God here. 
I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. So when we think about the joy of the people of God, it, it increases the more we interact and inter, become intersected with God's love. So the more God intersects our lives with His love, the more, the more we grow, the more we rejoice. Now here we have an issue. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. When, when you have a Bible, an English Bible, who puts down in a footnote the meaning of the Hebrew here is uncertain, that means you have an issue. So there are a myriad of opinions over what he could be saying from the range of positive to negative. Is he offering that I will gather you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer a reproach? And is the you, lo, you, know who, you will no longer suffer reproach the same you who... You who mourn the festival, yes, it gets that complex. And who are those who mourn the festival? I'm not going to get into all the details of it. I'm not even sure I know all of them. And when, when, the, when the translators of a Bible say it's uncertain, I don't, I don't propose to you that I know more than they do. What does seem to be the issue here is uh, Zephaniah talking about God dealing with hypocrites. Those who mourn the festivals rather than rejoice in them would have been those who went through the the all the, the, the rites went through the motions, but we're not rejoicing in who God is. So this is where we have to be, you, you know the old cliche, fake it till you make it, um, deal it till you feel it, or whatever, whatever, whatever they are. I just made that one up, by the way. Uh, that's not a thing. So if you're like, I've never heard that one, it's like because I just, or at least I made it up in this moment. Somebody's probably said it before. So deal it till you feel it is not a thing, but it can be now. For the low price of $19.99. Just, um, <clears throat> so there are, there are some senses where there are times in life where you and I, we have to just kind of get up and, and do it even though we're not feeling it. Yeah, we need to be doing that. So what Zephaniah is here is addressing is someone of fundamental nature. It's not, it's not pretending to be rejoicing in who God is, but in our hearts hating it that God will not let vanity hinder his people and his mission. Pretenders have no place in the Lord. Pretenders have no place in the Lord. We're all guilty of hypocrisy. And let passages like this remind us to lay those things bare before God. I have to lay them bare in my own heart, and I pray that you will in yours. So he, he continues, so that you will no longer suffer reproach, not be burdened or weighed down by the hypocrisy of things, but behold, when, when that's dealt with, as he's dealing with these things, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Look at what God says he is doing. I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame. I will save the lame. He mentions three people here, the lame, scattered, the shamed, or the outcast. So salvation, we think about it, is real, or, is, 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 or joy is real, rather, because salvation is God's work among us. He's, he genuinely saves His people. But I love the picture He paints here with the lame and the outcast and those who are shamed. So when we start looking at who does God gather, who does God go after, who does God save, it's not the, the, the healthy people. <laughs> It's not what is already, I'm going to put this in quotes, beautiful. It's the thing that is fractured. It's the thing that is 
ugly. It's the thing that is marred for a time. There's beauty in there. It just has to be brought back out. It's the lost. It's the hurting. It's the broken. It's the needy. It's those who know they don't have it together. Those who walk limping. Those who hang their heads in shame and beat their breast and say, I'm not worthy. Not those who make a list of their accolades as to why they are worthy. Not those who present you with a, a bill of why they deserve what they get. Not those who are beautiful in and of themselves. God goes after those who need to be beautified. He goes after the unlovely. Why? So that our loveliness is not anything of our own making. It's His. So that when people see our loveliness, they see the loveliness of God. That God will renew His own people. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, I will gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised, and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. That's how God ends this. That's how Zephaniah ends this little paragraph. That the Lord renews His people. Why? For His own glory. For His glory. Why did Christ come? For the glory of God. Why did Christ come? To make us what we should be in the Lord. Why did Christ come? To restore. To be God among us. To be God in our midst. Why did Christ come? To be the warrior. To fight the fight that we can't fight. Why did Christ come? to be the singer of songs of love that we might learn to sing after him songs of love. And so when we look at why God personally intervenes to restore his people, we understand that the incarnation, Jesus came to do that very thing. So when we think about why are we saved, what, what, is, what is the Christmas message meant to evoke in us? That we're saved to serve. That's one thing. Not, limply, not simply let our hands grow weak. We're saved to fight. We're saved to be warriors. We're saved to sing. And I don't just mean walking through the halls singing, although Paul does say, greet one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I mean, if you've ever heard Joni Arison Tata speak, she will just break out in song in the middle of it. She's talking and just boom, she breaks out in song. And it's genuine. It's not an act. When you hear her do it, some people might, might, might think, oh, what? That's a nice shtick. And that's not what it is at all. It's someone that in their brokenness has been confronted with the power and salvation of God, and they sing. They sing. They sing back to a singing God who sings love and hope and mercy over us. If you're like me and you struggle with joy and you struggle with fear creeping in in places where you kind of think you have it locked down, then I want to remind you and myself this morning that the truth sets us free. It genuinely sets us free. The truth of God sets us free. And it's, it's not a truth that we merely acknowledge once. It governs who we are. It governs how we live. Are you doubting the season? Are you doubting as you, as you see life happen, as we were watching what's happening in our world I want to I close with this. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing.
I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this word this morning. I thank you just for just leading us to it. Sometimes it's easy to look over these, what we would consider obscure prophecies, and yet there are gold mines in there when we take time to dig, to cultivate. So thank you for the prophet Zephaniah. Thank you for using the Holy Spirit to pen some beautiful, awesome words that remind us of who you are and what that means for us. Be with us, I pray. Help us to rejoice Thank you for the incarnation. As we celebrate the Advent this season, thank you that it genuinely does bring hope and joy. May we walk in celebration. Father, lament. May we lament like we ought, but may that lament lead us back to rejoicing. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.